0: Uh, Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we've been talking about it a lot because we need to because it's a pressing issue and there's a lot of noise about it. We're going to try to turn down the noise today, get to some good information you can actually use to discern one of the hot topics of the day right now, the economy and inflation. We got another one of our great Young Voices contributors, Jack Salmon. Uh, He's written all over. He's done a lot of policy work at a lot of places you would recognize. Sir, how are you this morning? Appreciate your time.
1: I'm very well. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here.
0: Great to have you. Uh, I always enjoy when we have people on with economic things because I'm not great at this stuff. Like I read it. I try to keep up on it, but I'm really not great on it. I didn't like math in school. This is too much math for me. Work, Work with me here and explain it to me like I'm five because everybody understands now that we've got an inflation issue. The question seems to be, though, where did it come from? Because everybody wants to jump to the blame part of the inflation issue, which is natural because they want to do the political side. But explain this to me slowly, though. Where did this particular inflation crisis come from? Was it government policy? Was it spending? Where did this current crisis come from? Because we understand this didn't happen five minutes ago. This is something that has built up over years, right?
1: That's correct. There's really multiple factors that play into the current surge in inflation that we're seeing. But some factors are being underplayed and others. There are others that are being used as as excuses to cover government policies and missed mandates followed by the Fed. So to answer this question, I'd start from the history of the Federal Reserve and its and its mandates on controlling inflation. So going back to 1977, the Federal Reserve has had two mandates. It's called the dual mandate. One is to maximize employment, to ensure that the unemployment rate is as low as possible. And the other mandate, the one that we're concerned about here today is the keeping the price level low and stable. In other words, keeping inflation under control. Since 2012, the Fed has defined low and stable as 2% inflation using their PCE, which is their preferred inflation metric. We we have two measures of inflation. We have CPI, which is the one we often hear about, the consumer price index, and the PCE, which is the Fed's preferred measure. It tends to be a little lower on average, and it tends to be smooth, so it's less volatile, less ups and downs over time. So the Fed has had this 2% mandate, and From about 1990 until 2020, really when the pandemic started, inflation, PC inflation did average about 2%. So in that regard, the mandate was fairly successful. However, starting in 2020 at a symposium in Jackson Hole, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell decided to change this inflation mandate. Instead of targeting 2% inflation over time, he wanted to play catch up because the inflation rate in, in the few years prior had been below 2%. So the idea was to run inflation hot, run inflation above 2% for a temporary period of time. He didn't specify what temporary period of time was or how high moderate inflation would be above 2%. But since that, since that period, since 2020, that's when really everything has changed. However, I, I, I up front that this wasn't necessarily a, Monetary policy fault. The inflation that we're seeing today is driven by fiscal policy. In other words, Congress overspending. Um, We've we've seen about five trillion dollars of not spending, but additional spending on top of what government already spends over the last two years in fiscal stimulus. Now, this is a real-time experiment in what people refer to as modern monetary policy. It's really a, a helicopter drop of cash. The Federal Reserve had to monetize all of this new money. So the printing press was run hot. Um, it, they only stopped buying Treasury debt two weeks ago. So that gives you an idea of the scale of the problem with a massive increase in the money supply. This was the first time in US history where we've had a recession where incomes went up. That, that really gives you some idea of the scale of, of government spending and fiscal stimulus.
0: Yeah, because a lot of the metrics that we normally, even people that aren't real up on economics, they understand things like the unemployment rate, like low unemployment supposed to be good, high unemployment's bad. And then they hear things about, you know, the policies you just mentioned. This stuff has sounded incongruent. We've been talking on this show a lot. Like, it just doesn't make sense. How do you have a labor shortage, but you have low unemployment? How do we have all this, you know, income and wealth and the economy for the average person is kind of having bumps. But overall, if you look at the numbers, the economy is really, really good in some sectors. A lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. Is a lot of that incongruity just coming from the fact that there's just so much money getting pumped into it that it just makes kind of the standard, I don't know if you call them metrics or milestones or whatever term you want to use, is just the way we normally measure and talk about this stuff getting skewed because it's just so much money and so much debt and so much spending that it's just unprecedented?
1: Yes. Um, to, to get some idea of the scale increase in the money supply, the the the, the, the often used metric is called the M2. It's the base money supply. It grew by 40% through 2020, 2021. Uh, that means 40% of all the, all the dollars circulating through the economy were created in the, in the past two years. I just give you some idea of the scale. So inflation, broadly measured, is, 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 the, is simply defined as uh, too much money chasing too few goods. Now, we often hear about the too few goods aspect, and that's the supply chain crisis, um, supply bottlenecks, shortages of 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 microchips. but we we seldom hear politicians or even economists for that matter, talking about the 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 demand side, and that is the the money supply and the excess demand, driven by huge increases in in, in income during the past couple of years, dri- driven by this fiscal stimulus government spending surge that we've seen.
0: And we had kind of a unique thing in history where we had, A temporary supply side inflation problem because things like COVID, uh, of course, COVID worked in waves across the global supply chain. So it it was kind of a unique event in history where you had that happen. So we did have supply side uh, issues with inflation, but a lot of people were concerned is like, hey, we've got all this fiscal policy on top of this. this. This stuff's going to run into each other. Did the one lead to the other? Did the one just happen to happen while the other was going? Were they connected? Were they not connected? Try to break that down for us a little bit because people, they they just hear inflation. They don't understand there's different kinds of inflation. How much were they actually connected or did they just kind of run parallel to each other?
1: There was definitely a strong connection between the two. I'd start by, by making the point that the economic contraction that we saw in the spring of 2020, driven by the pandemic, by the government shutdowns and business closures. This was a supply contraction. Everything shut down. The government treated it as a conventional recession. In other words, they treated it as if there was a sudden drop in demand. That wasn't the case. People weren't not buying things. They just couldn't buy things. And so the government reacted as they would to a conventional recession by sending everyone money under the assumption that there was a slump in demand. And so the service sector is completely shut down, yet everybody's pockets are being filled with with federal federal, uh, uh, taxpayer money. And so when things opened up, naturally the supply side couldn't keep up with this huge excess of demand, this huge excess of money that's now flowing into the economy. In actual fact, these supply chains have been exceeding their capacity in recent months. In fact, I would say throughout 2021, supply chains have been have been very efficient in processing goods uh, throughout the economy they just can't keep up with this huge surge in demand there are some some issues with supply chains in certain areas um, that, that, that sort of predate this this surge in demand but these are really long-term structural issues um, there are po- government policies in place that keep the supply chain really quite outdated compared to compared to the sort of imports and export systems that we have in in europe and in, and in asian economies and that's down to things like like the jones act uh, the dredge act and the fact that essentially all of our port and warehouse um labor markets are entirely unionized and they have strict contracts that limit hours um they they oppose automation at essentially every turn so we have these 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 cranes that have been in place for for decades that are fully f- fully manual and, um, that, that can only be oper- operated by workers and only during maybe maybe 20, 30 hours a week which is which is the hours that those people are contracted to work on compared to European and Asian ports where where the cranes are fully automated and they can process twice as many imported goods compared to compared to US ports.
0: Talking to Jack salmon uh, the part of this too is it over this may be an oversimplification but just so we can get our minds around it we're talking about how the supply chain can affect inflation monetary p- policy has a supply chain too and it's not you know shipping stuff from China to sell a Walmart there's a policy process to how monetary po- process goes from theory to money actually going into the system is the supply chain for the monetary policy in a healthy place right now, or is it broken too? And we really need to review how that monetary policy goes from the thought and theory into the actual putting money in circulation. And
1: that's that's a very big question for a monetary economist. I'm, I'm, <laughs>
0: and give two examples, please.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not really entirely sure about the, the supply dynamics of monetary policy. I can mostly speak to the fiscal, the fiscal dynamics and the crossover between Fiscal policy and inflation.
0: Great. Then explain that one to me because that's a big word. Crossover dynamics. That is. Does that is that as violent as it sounds? Because it sounds like a collage, a collision, or a collapse, or two things running into each other. Or is it more dynamic, where it actually flows into each other?
1: Well, one of the big big risks right now is that it is the word you use is collision. Um, it's this sort of crossover between monetary and fiscal policy that, that we we really shouldn't want to see, and and we hope we don't see, but the risks of this are growing. Um, As the public debt, which is now the same size as the entire US economy, continues to grow, there is a risk of what we call in economics fiscal dominance. And it's it's a phenomenon whereby the Federal Reserve can no longer abide by its, its mandate, one of which is to keep inflation low and steady because they're preoccupied with keeping the interests of congress as their priority namely to keep interest payments on the debt as low as possible one of the reasons they're so reluctant to raise interest rates right now in dealing with this current surge in inflation is because it will increase the interest rates the government pays on its debt now we had this issue in the 1980s during the during the end the end of the great inflation period but at that time the debt to GDP was about 25%. Today, we're talking about 100%. So the cost of hiking rates, the way we did in the 80s, would be fourfold more painful. So there's a strong reluctance from the Federal Reserve to pursue the, the, the policy, the hiking interest rates necessary to quell the current inflation because they're captured by these, by these congressional interests.
0: Yeah, I'm talking to Jack Salmon. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about it. We're going to get a little bit more into the policy side of this, where he's more comfortable anyway. Uh, we're going to talk about Congress's role in this. Uh, we're going to get into some of the policy that has caused this inflation, making sure we get the blame where it goes, because if we don't know where the blame goes, we don't know where the fix needs to go. So more with Jack Salmon, more fiscal policy, more on inflation. Another great Young Voices contributor on Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're getting into the deep end on inflation and monetary policy with our friend Jack Salmon, another great young voices contributor. Okay, we're talking fiscal policy in the United States of America. We know who has the power of the purse. All fiscal roads at some point go through Congress. A lot of this mess. Look, we it's it's basically a joke now. We talk about that Congress is dysfunctional, Congress doesn't even do proper budgeting anymore. There's just no way that wasn't going to spill out into fiscal policy at some point. Are we at that point of like everybody knew this was going to cause a train wreck at some point? Here be the train wreck, or is that overstating it?
1: Actually, most people are still, most people within the political circles are, are still very much in denial that this was a fiscally driven di- dynamic. In fact, it's been quite surprising to see that those who actually warned about the, the risks of inflation. With massive government stimulus, were the old Obama economists, the the, the Keynesian economists. We saw Larry Summers um, and, and in, increasingly, more recently, Jason Furman, warning about the risks back in the spring of twenty twenty one, when policymakers were debating the, the the minute details of the American Rescue Plan, because it was it was at that moment that fiscal policy really started to accelerate inflation and, and, and t- take off inflation expectations. At the time, many economists were talking about closing the output gap. The output gap is where we hope to see the level of GDP moving forward based, based on previous trends and where current GDP actually is. So it, it shows you how much we're undershooting our potential. At the time when policymakers were debating the American Rescue Plan, the, the estimated output gap was about $380 billion. So they were making the case that we had to spend that much in order to stimulate the economy to close the output gap. Now, the output gap, they said, was three hundred and eighty billion dollars. They ended up spending one point nine trillion dollars to close the output gap. Now, that was more than an overshoot. Um, So we now see nominal GDP massively outpacing potential GDP, which is a a sure sign of, of inflation and also a sign of future inflation. So I don't think we're out of the woods yet. We probably have a, about another year of, of heightened levels of inflation to go. Um, and that's just from the spending under the American Rescue Plan. Also, also I, I should add, um, as of two weeks ago, I, I run the numbers and there are still about $700 billion of that $1.9 trillion of stimulus that are yet to run through the system. They haven't yet been dispersed. So we're, we're still seeing that stimulus run through the economy at this point.
0: That's an amazing thing of the American government that we can't even spend money correctly. Sometimes it's just mind boggling. Uh, Let's just delve into that for just a second, though, because the pushback on that from people in Congress would be was, well, we had an emergency. We had to spend this money. Okay, that's fine. That's all well and good. We understand that. But the thing about it is economics is a fiscal science. The math don't care whether it was a crisis or not. At some point, that spending still has to be accounted for. And it also didn't happen in a vacuum. It came on the tail end of years and years and years of more massive spending. I, I, I get a little tired of the rhetoric where they're like, well, this is an emergency. It's like, okay, it's in a normal household. If you have an emergency and you don't have the money, you still don't have the money and you can only borrow so much. They just don't seem to want to put all the pieces together when they discuss it with the American people. And I understand they don't want to because it makes them look really, really bad. But you as an economist, when you view it, you put those things together. You put together that, yes, it's a crisis, but it's still a massive amount of money. And it's still a massive amount of money on top of the last decade or two decades or however far you want to go back. All that massive amount of money. This stuff all goes together in a sequence to paint the full picture. And Congress just doesn't ever seem to want to deal with the full picture, do they?
1: No, that's correct. And we entered this crisis with trillion dollar deficits. We had a decade to get our budget balanced, to get it under control, to limit our spending levels, but political interests prevailed. And so it was never addressed. Um, You should always fix your roof while the rain is shining. Um, We've been making this case for years. It would have been far easier to enter this this crisis and and pursue this this level of spending, although it, it shouldn't have been as high as it was. Um, if we had our fiscal house in order, other countries had spent years lowering their debt burdens and so they entered this crisis more smoothly, they didn't have to spend as much, and now they're, they're exiting the crisis with, with, with a mu- much better economic and budgetary condition. Yes, we had to spend in 2020 um, to, to, to deal with the crisis. But as I said earlier, this was a supply shock. It, it, it wasn't so much a conventional, it, it wasn't a normal recession. This wasn't a, a, a business cycle um, recession. This, this was a supply shock driven by a pandemic and forced business closures. And so, yes, there was scope for the government to provide insurance, but not stimulus checks. Um, then there may have been scope for the government to support, to support those who were, who were left temporarily unemployed but not by paying them excessively more than they were making before they, before they were made unemployed, which, which was the case. And for a, a very prolonged period of time, there, was huge, there were huge amounts of unemployment checks that were collected that we're now seeing were, were fraudulent it's the, the, in, in the cost of tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars. So yes, spending was needed. As much as we spent, I, I don't believe so, probably the wrong kind of spending in many areas, but the question of whether the American Rescue Plan in, in March, 2021, by which point, unemployment was, was, was extremely low. Um, labor markets were beginning to become very tight. Wages were accelerating. Things were looking healthy. Um, we, we, vaccines had been, had been rolled out and the economy was, was, was very much on the road to recovery. Why we spent another $1.9 trillion is, is beyond me. It was completely unnecessary.
0: Is there any way, and here's an impossible question, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway, because we just, nobody will talk about this part of it. We say things like get our fiscal house in order. We say things like we need to have more accountability in government. We have all these stories about all that stimulus money you just talked about. Some of it, they can't even figure out where it went. Some of it hasn't even been spent yet. Uh, A lot of the states ran into the 2020 stimulus packages. A lot of them had to spend it, hurry up and spend it at the end of this last new year because it was getting ready. They'd sat on it for two years. Um, We hear all these terms, though. But again, you work on the fiscal side of this. How do we get good fiscal policy at this point? Because Congress is obviously not really interested in it. The executive doesn't really have any grounds to override Congress on most of these issues without with a few exceptions and probably wouldn't be a good fiscal policy to do it that way anyway. What, what do we do? And this is just kind of a frustrated cry of, you know, what do we do? Because I don't see a path to any kind of good physical policy coming anytime soon. Do you?
1: So I can answer the question of what we should do, but I, I am I am less optimistic on on the question of will they do it. Um, I, I, I'm I'm quite well versed in uh, public choice economics, and so I, I I understand the dynamics that work with policymakers. Their interests are almost entirely in being re-elected. And so they will, they will cater to the interests of their electorate. And if that means promising goodies and never raising the revenues, then they will continue to do so. So it's really an issue of incentives. What really drives our fiscal deficits long-term and our, our, our growth in, in the debt trajectory, um, looking past recent stimulus spending, it's really rooted in legislation passed in about seven a seven year period between 1965 and 1972, with the creation of government healthcare programs Medicare, Medicaid, and uh, changes made to the Social Security system with, where where payments were massively expanded. About four fifths of our long term budget deficits are driven by policies passed during that seven year period. So failure to address those issues, failure to reform those programs, is 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 is, is really the only option. Uh, sorry, failure to address those those issues is is really shooting ourselves in the foot. We can we can limit spending on on other areas, whether it's education or or defense, but it's really just going to scratch the tip of the iceberg because, as I say, eighty percent of of the deficit spending long term comes from comes from those those three programs, Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. And so we have to limit the spending growth in those areas. That's one option is on the spending side. Another option is to raise revenues. It's, it's far less popular. I'm not an advocate of raising taxes because of the economic harm that comes from raising taxes. I don't think we should be hurting our growth prospects because having dynamic economic growth is another way to, to sort of grow ourselves out, out of this debt burden. So we need to limit spending on government entitlement programs, primarily social security, Medicare and Medicaid. We need to broaden the base, the tax base, without raising rates so that we can increase revenues. And we need, we, we really need economic reforms, deregulation to increase our growth rate so that we can actually grow our way out of some of these burdens.
0: Yeah, and good luck getting a politician to do the Hobson's choice of picking between taking grandma's benefits away and taxing everybody else. Uh, right. that's, that's, that's going to be an ugly reality at some point uh, for somebody. It's just, when do the musical chairs stop? Let me ask you one more thing, Jack Salmon joining us before we go. Uh, the rhetoric out of the white house. Now we've seen it a couple of times back the beginning of March, they trotted this out. And again, a couple days ago, they trotted it out again. They're pitching this line that, uh, the Biden administration and the democratic party, which of course has the trifecta right now, they got all three, both houses of Congress and the executive. So, <clears throat> They're trotting out this line that under Democratic leadership, since they've taken over, uh, they have cut the deficit uh, by more than half. This is some fun with numbers because you pointed it out on Twitter. I pointed it out on this show. Well, yeah, we started this conversation talking about the massive, unprecedented levels of spending. So compared to basically anything else, yes, it's less now. Uh, those are fun with numbers and they don't really react to uh, they don't really reflect reality when they say things like they've cut the deficit in half since they've took charge does it
1: exactly it, it, it's very disingenuine um, cutting the cutting the deficit in half after they blew up spending by five trillion dollars really isn't that big a challenge all you had to do was sit on his hands what we should be doing is comparing current deficits to prior years before the pandemic to as a uh, a more typical baseline. So we should be looking at 2018, 2019 deficits and comparing current deficits to those years. Uh, Deficits at that time were about 900 billion, close to a trillion dollars. This year, the the financial year deficit is expected to come in about $1.8 trillion. So if anything, deficits are about double where they were before the pandemic. The argument that deficits have been cut in half is is, is just, is, it's a fallacy.
0: <laughs> Jack Salmon joining us. Outstanding information. Whole lot of explaining things that needed to be explained, especially to me, because I don't understand them as well as do. I feel smarter already, my friend. Until we have you back on again, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, where you're writing and what you're working on.
1: Sure. The best place to, to find me is probably my bio page on the Young Voices website. And I believe my Twitter handle is also on there if you want to follow me on Twitter.
0: Yep, and his Twitter handle is right there on the screen if you're watching on YouTube or the Facebook channel uh, on that lower third graphic. Make sure you're following him. Uh, Jack Salmon, appreciate it. Great information. Very much looking forward to having you on again because I got a feeling it's an election year here in America. That means it's the economy, stupid. We're going to definitely need you back to continue explaining these things to us. Thank you so much for the time, sir.
1: Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Andrew.
0: Yes, sir.